Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. It was a cold and blustery October day in southern Arizona when Wyatt, Morgan, and Virgil Earp, accompanied by Doc Holliday, headed with a brisk walk, the wind whipping at their greatcoats toward Fremont Street in Tombstone, where destiny awaited them. The tension had been building for months now in Tombstone, with sides taken and threats made, the loudest by Ike Clanton, who, the night before, had told everyone within earshot that he was going to kill the Earps tomorrow. Tomorrow had now come, and it was time to settle the matter once and for all. Shopkeepers watched them walk by from the safety of their front windows. Bit players in the tragedy watched them from behind corners. Doc Holliday's common-law wife, Big Nose Kate, watched from her second-story window at Fly's boarding house as the Clantons and McClory's waited in the alley below her for the Earps and Holliday to appear. Doc seemed to have a death wish this past year, and maybe this would be the day. She watched him looking below as he stood near the corner of a building and as the wind whipped at the corner of his gray coat, she saw the sawed-off express gun he was carrying beneath it. The men took their positions. Virgil was the marshal. He had come to take their guns to enforce the law. With his brothers, and as of a few minutes ago, Doc Holliday, whom Virgil had deputized on the spot, were all acting as officers of the law. The two groups were facing each other, standing only six to ten feet from each other, each one knowing that the slightest movement might set it all off. We got to go, boys. Spread up. Before you go away, I'm going to town. Go to the city ordinance. We're going back to the ranch. Going back to the ranch. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. In the silence, two clicks were heard. The sound of hammers being drawn back on Billy Clanton's and Frank McClory's holstered single-action pistols. Virgil called out, Hold it! I want your guns! Then someone shouted, Son of a bitch! And the next words were lost in the first exchange of shots. Billy Clanton leveled his pistol, holding it at arm's length and aiming it quiet. Wyatt, ignoring Billy because he wanted to take out Frank McClory, whom Earp knew to be the better shot, fired at McClory, the bullet hitting him in the stomach, while Billy's shot missed Wyatt. Shot in the stomach, Frank McClory stumbled toward the street. Tom McClory, upon seeing his brother hit, threw open his vest, shouting, I have nothing. 
a clear sign that he had no weapon. He had reached for the rifle in the scabbard on Frank's horse, but the horse was shying away, and he now took cover behind the nervous animal. Billy Clanton was the next to be hit, the target of Morgan Earp's six-shooter. One bullet went through Billy's right wrist, then a second hit him in the chest. Reeling back, he fell against the window of the Harwood House, a private residence that stood across the 20-foot-wide alley from Fly's Photograph Galley and Boarding House, where Kate was watching from the second-story window. As he slid down into a sitting position, he switched his gun to his right hand and, resting the barrel over his forearm, continued to fire, though very unsteadily. Just after the first shots were fired, Ike Clanton, unarmed, had lunged at Wyatt, grabbing his arm and trying to get a grip around his shoulder. Quickly assessing that Ike had no gun, Wyatt coolly pushed him away, saying, Go to fighting or get away and Ike ran off toward Fly's front door. Doc Holliday got off a shotgun blast aimed at Ike that missed just as he passed through the door. Sheriff John Bean, as much at the bottom of this mess as any of them, had been standing, frozen, off to the side. Just minutes before this, he had told the Earps that the cowboys were all unarmed, and he had tried to stop the Earps from confronting them. When the shooting started, Bean leaped for cover, pulling a young bystander named Billy Claiborne around to the back door of Flies and pulling him in. Almost at the same time, Ike Clanton was seen running out the back door of Flies and headed toward the back stalls of the OK Corral. Ike Clanton didn't stop running until he reached a Mexican dance hall on Allen Street, where he hid. Back in the lot that comprised the alley, Frank McClory's horse bolted, exposing Tom McClory. Doc leveled his scattergun at Tom and fired, the buckshot hitting Tom's vest and penetrating his right side. Tom McClory then walked unsteadily down Fremont Street, wavered, and fell, dying. All this had taken place in the space of about 15 seconds. Ike had fled, and three of the cowboys were wounded, with two still able to shoot. Virgil hadn't fired a shot yet. He was drawn to fire at Billy when it had started, but Billy was driven back by Morgan's bullets, and now, standing in the lot, Virgil felt a bullet rip into his calf. He fell to the ground about ten feet from where Billy lay, his gun firing across his arm. Frank McClory wasn't done yet either. He had tried to get his rifle from his scabbard, but his horse was shying away from him, so he drew his pistol, only to find Doc Holliday eyeing him from only a few feet away. Doc had dropped the shotgun and was aiming his nickel-plated pistol at Frank. The two men fired simultaneously. Doc's bullet hitting Frank McClory. McClory's bullet hitting Doc's holster and glancing off his hip. Morgan had also shot at McClory, and that bullet entered McClory's head below the ear, dropping him immediately. Billy was still game and aiming at Morgan, and this time Billy's bullet found its mark, hitting Morgan in the shoulder. Morgan and Wyatt fired together, both shots hitting Billy in the ribs, and Billy slumped down further, dying. Those were the last shots fired on that fateful day, October 26, 1881. Gunsmoke drifted over the scene. Camilla's fly came out of his shop and crossed the lot to where Billy lay dying, but still trying to cock his gun. Billy managed to croak out, 
Give me some more cartridges. As Fly pulled a pistol from his weakened grasp. The gunfight had ended. Of the eight men who were involved, three were dead, three were wounded, and two were unscathed. Wyatt and Ike would run from the scene. By late that afternoon, Tombstone was up in arms. Whistles were blown at the mines, and the miners marched into town with guns to protect their homes and hearth. Allies of the Earps watched their homes to protect their families while they were being patched up by the town doctor. The bodies of the dead men were delivered to the undertaker. Sheriff Bean and others were calling the Earps cold-blooded murderers, and soon the story started to circulate, with Bean's help, that none of the Clantons or McClory's were armed, and that the Earps had caused all this to happen. Bean, a long-time enemy of the Earps, jailed Wyatt and Doc on charges of murder. Virgil was suspended as city marshal. A tense cloud of doubt and nervousness hung like a wreath over Tombstone as everyone waited for the next shoe to drop. Tombstone, which calls itself the city that's too tough to die, and is located in southern Arizona, about 30 miles from the Mexican border, has a population of about 1,300, which is about one-third of what it was in 1880, when it was a booming silver town. Tourism accounts for a good portion of the town's income today, and along with a number of 1880s-era buildings and saloons that are still standing, the gunfight at the O.K. Corral is reenacted every day. Tombstone was founded in 1879 by prospector Ed Shefflin in what was then Pima County, Arizona Territory, and it became one of the last boom towns in the American frontier. Tombstone grew significantly into the mid-1880s as the local mines produced 40 to $85 million worth of silver bullion, the largest productive silver district in Arizona. Its population grew from 100 to around 14,000, in less than seven years. Ed Shefflin's story is told in part in our Tom Horn episode in our archives, in Tom's own words, in his autobiography, parts of which we covered as he was there when Shefflin discovered silver. Horn would soon sell his shares and move on to becoming a bounty hunter for the Cattlemen's Association in Wyoming. Tombstone was established on a mesa perched between the Dragoon and the Whetstone Mountains. Within two years of its founding, Although far distant from any other metropolitan area, Tombstone had a bowling alley, four churches, an ice house, a school, two banks, three newspapers, and an ice cream parlor. Alongside, somewhere between 80 to 110 saloons, 14 gambling halls, and numerous dance halls and brothels. All of these businesses were situated among and on top of a large number of silver mines. The gentlemen and ladies of Tombstone attended operas presented by visiting acting troops at the Shifflin Hall Opera House, while the miners and cowboys saw shows at the Birdcage Theater and Brothel. The Birdcage Theater definitely earned its place in Western history, and this story would be remiss 
in not telling it. It was first opened and stayed open intermittently between violations of city ordinances from December 1881 to 1894. When the silver mines closed, the theater was also closed, closed and locked up with no one disturbing its contents until it was leased as a coffee shop starting in 1934. Talk about a coffee shop with a lot of history. The birdcage was owned by Lottie and William Billy Hutchinson, and although it may have been Billy's intent to present respectable family shows there, the clientele it soon found itself with was demanding other kinds of entertainment. So the Hutchinsons livened the place up with two full bars, traveling vaudeville acts, and a steady supply of girls for hire. One of the first acts of the birdcage was Mademoiselle de Granville, whose real name was Alma Hayes, and she was known as the female Hercules and the woman with the iron jaw, performing feats of strength and specializing in picking up heavy objects with her teeth, like small tables. Other acts included the Irish comic duo Burns and Trayers, comic singer Irene Baker, Carrie Delmar, who was a serious opera singer, and comedian Nola Forrest. Entertainment included masquerade balls featuring cross-dressing entertainers like comedians David Waters and Will Curlew. The birdcage took its name from the twelve curtained balcony boxes in which soiled doves plied their trade, called birdcages. One wealthy box regular called Russian Bill was a frequenter to one of those boxes at $40 a night, which was a lot of money in those days. And the action below as seen from the birdcage was pretty lively with occasional knife fights, shootings, dancing, and performers ranging from singing acts to belly dancers, all mixing it up day and night. A portrait of, and donated by, the wealthy belly dancer Fatima still covers a large part of one wall, her attributes on display riddled with bullet holes. Stairs led down to the basement, where high-stakes poker games were common. There's a photo showing a crowded lower room and bar, and closest to us, a table at which Doc Holliday is intently watching as Wyatt is dealing Pharaoh, and the table's covered with money and chips. The room is packed. Games like this one cost $1,000 just to buy in, and often went on for days, the longest one running eight years between 1881 and 1889, meaning that the game stayed in progress day and night, with tired gamblers leaving and others waiting to take their place for eight years. And yes, it's a world record. Some of the notables who sat in on that game, besides Doc and Wyatt, George Hurst, Diamond Jim Brady, Adolphus Bush, and Bad Masterson. Legend has it that 27 people were killed there, and a few Ghost Hunter-style shows have been filmed there at the Birdcage, where a number of people have sworn that they have heard and seen some very strange things going on there. The birdcage had and has its imitators, but Tombstone was the first and the best remembered. As mentioned previously, mines run under the entire town, so you can say that Tombstone had a lot going on beneath the surface. And it had its warring factions, another type of simmering beneath the surface, tensions that grew into the deadly conflict that history remembers as the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. And believe it or not, those tensions were taking place between supporters of political parties. Imagine that. The mining capitalists and the respectable townspeople, in this case, were largely Republicans from the northern states, 
Many of the ranchers, some of whom, like the Clantons, were also rustlers, were Confederate sympathizers and largely Democrats. The booming city was only 30 miles from the U.S.-Mexico border and was an open market for cattle stolen from ranches in Sonora, Mexico by a loosely organized band of outlaws known as the Cowboys. And we're sorry to give the American Cowboys a bad name, but that's what this bad element around Tombstone was called in that time. The Earp brothers, Wyatt, Virgil, and Morgan, as well as Doc Holliday, arrived in December 1879, with Doc coming in mid-1880. When Wyatt first set eyes on Tombstone, the main streets swarmed with prospectors buying tools and busy carpenters working on building fronts and plank sidewalks. Every type was there, from miners to cowboys to gamblers and confidence men to respectable citizens. The confidence men who made their money selling bogus shares in property and mines must have been rubbing their hands together when they saw three well-dressed men in top hats and frock coats helping their wives down from their wagons in that December of 1879, all looking as respectable as deacons. The wagons and trailing horses were pretty well worn, having just traveled 750 miles from Dodge City, Kansas, through Prescott to pick up Virgil, and on to Tombstone. The Earps had arrived. Wyatt had resigned from the Dodge City Police Force on September 9th, 1879, and traveled first to Las Vegas in New Mexico Territory with his common-law wife, Maddie, his brother Jim, and Jim's wife, Bessie. There they reunited with Doc Holliday and his common-law wife, Big Nose Kate, and the six of them went on to Prescott, Arizona Territory. Virgil was appointed Deputy U.S. Marshal for the Tombstone Mining District on November 27, 1879, three days before they left for Tombstone from Prescott, by U.S. Marshal for the Arizona Territory, Crawley P. Dake. So it was Virgil's appointment to that job and his guaranteed place in the seat of power in Tombstone that helped the Earps solidify their decision to head there. Virgil was to operate out of Tombstone some 280 miles from Prescott, and his territory included the entire southeast area of the Arizona Territory. Wyatt, Virgil, and James Earp arrived in Tombstone with their wives on December 1, 1879, while Doc Holliday remained in Prescott, where the gambling afforded better opportunities. Holliday would come a few months later. When the city of Tombstone was founded on March 5, 1879, there were about a hundred people living there in tents and a few shacks. The Earps arrived nine months later on December 1, and by then Tombstone had already grown to about a thousand residents, still young. Wyatt brought horses and a buckboard wagon which he planned to convert into a stagecoach, but he found two established stage lines already running. He later said that he made most of his money in Tombstone as a professional gambler. The three Earps and Robert J. Winders filed a location notice on December 6, 1879, for the first north extension of the Mountain Maid Mine. They also bought an interest in the Vizina Mine and some water rights. Jim, his one arm still pretty much useless from his war wound, worked as a barkeep. His intent was to become a saloon keeper. Wyatt was hired in April or May of 1880 by Wells Fargo agent Fred J. Dodge as a shotgun messenger on stagecoaches when they transported Wells Fargo strongboxes. In late July of 1880, younger brother Morgan arrived, leaving his wife Lou in Temescal, California, 
near his parents' home in San Bernardino, and Warren Earp moved to Tombstone as well, which put five Earps in Tombstone, although you won't hear about Warren and James much in this story. Doc Holliday arrived from Prescott in September with $40,000 in gambling winnings in his pocket, a huge amount for those days. On July 25, 1880, Army Captain Joseph H. Hurst asked Deputy U.S. Marshal Virgil Earp to assist him in tracking outlaw cowboys who had stolen six Army mules from Fort Rucker, Arizona. Virgil requested the assistance of his brothers Wyatt and Morgan, whom he deputized, along with Wells Fargo agent Marshall Williams, and they found the mules at the McClary's Ranch. They also found a branding iron which the cowboys had used to change the U.S. brand into a D-8. Stealing the mules was a federal offense because the animals were government property. But one thing was missing when they arrived, the mules. So although they had the guilty branding iron and the guilty party, they couldn't do a thing without the mules to prove it. Somehow, cowboy Frank Patterson was able to persuade Captain Hurst to have the posse withdraw with the understanding that the mules would be returned. Despite the posse's having found the altered branding iron, which would have been reason enough for hanging the rustlers on the spot if the federal government had not been involved. The cowboys showed up two days later without the mules and laughed at Hearst and the Earps. In response, Hearst printed a handbill describing the theft, and he charged McClary with hiding the mules. He also reproduced the handbill in the tombstone epitaph on July 30, 1880. McClary angrily printed a response in the cowboy-friendly Nugget calling Hurst unmanly, a coward, a vagabond, a rascal, and a malicious liar, and accusing him of stealing the mules himself. So it begins to give you an understanding of what kind of people the McClaries were. Hurst later cautioned the Earp brothers that the cowboys had threatened their lives. Virgil reported that McClary had accosted him and said, If you ever follow us again as close as you just did, you will have to fight. A month later, Earp ran into Frank and Tom McClory in Charleston, and they told him that they would kill him if he ever followed them, as he had done this time. County Sheriff Charles A. Shibble appointed Wyatt Earp as deputy sheriff for the eastern part of Pima County, Arizona, on July 28, 1880, an area which included Tombstone. So Wyatt passed his Wells Fargo job as shotgun messenger to his younger brother Morgan. Wyatt did his sheriff job well, and his name was mentioned nearly every week from August through November in the Tombstone Epitaph or the Nugget newspapers. The deputy sheriff's position was worth more than $40,000 a year because that also made Wyatt County assessor and tax collector, and the Board of Supervisors allowed him to keep 10% of the amounts paid. And some of those saloons and brothels paid hefty taxes. On October 28, 1880, Tombstone Town Marshal Fred White attempted to break up a group of five late-night drunken revelers shooting at the moon on Allen Street. Deputy Sheriff Earp was in Owen's saloon a block away, though unarmed. He heard the shooting and ran to the scene, borrowing a pistol from Fred Dodge, and went to assist White. He saw White attempt to disarm Curly Bill Brocious, and the gun discharged, striking White in the groin. Earp pistol-whipped Brocious, knocking him to the ground, and then he grabbed Brocious by the collar and told him to get up. Brocious asked, What have I done? Fred Dodge quickly arrived on the scene, and Dodge recalled what he saw in a letter to biographer Stuart Lake 
years later. It read, Wyatt's coolness and nerve never showed to better advantage than they did that night. When Morgan and I reached him, Wyatt was squatted on his heels beside Curly Bill and Fred White. Curly Bill's friends were pot-shooting at Wyatt in the dark. The shooting was lively, and slugs were hitting the chimney and cabin. In all of that racket, Wyatt's voice was even and quiet as usual. Brocious waived a preliminary hearing so that his case could be transferred to Tucson, and Virgil and Wyatt escorted him there to stand trial, possibly saving him from a lynching. White, age 31, died of his wound two days after his shooting. On December 27, 1880, Earp testified that White's shooting was accidental. Brocious expressed regret, saying that he had not intended to shoot White. Gunsmith Jacob Gruber testified that Brocious's single-action revolver was defective, allowing it to be discharged at half-cock. A statement was introduced, which White had made, stating that the shooting was accidental. The judge ruled that the shooting was accidental and released Brocious. But Brocious remained intensely angry about how Earp had pistol-whipped him, and he became an enemy to the Earps, despite the fact that they had gone out of their way to save him from a hanging. Curly Bill Brocious was a bad man through and through. He was described by one well-known historian, George B. Parsons, as being Arizona's most famous outlaw and killer. He had arrived in Arizona Territory from either Texas or Missouri about 1878 and went briefly to the San Carlos Reservation with a herd of cattle before arriving in the Arizona Territory. You might remember from our Tom Horn episode that Horn, at the age of 16, had been assigned to live for one year on the Apache Reservation at San Carlos by Al Packer, who was in charge of Indian scouts for General Crook, the purpose being to familiarize himself with the Apache language and customs. Horn later fought against the Apaches very effectively as a civilian scout for Crook in the Apache campaign. Brocious was an outlaw cowboy and a rustler, and was for a time also a tax collector for the Crooked Cochise County Sheriff, Johnny Bean, making other rustlers pay taxes on their stolen cattle. And that money went into Bean's coffers and added to his salary. Johnny Bean will figure largely in the story to come as an enemy of the Earps, an enemy that wielded considerable power politically, and one who was willing to lie to try to implicate the Earps in crimes that they didn't commit. Brocious was known for a mean sense of humor when drunk. He was reported to have perpetrated such practical jokes as using gunfire to make a preacher dance during a sermon and making Mexicans at a community dance take off their clothes and dance naked. Both incidents were reported by Wells Fargo agent Fred Dodge in his memoirs and both incidents are alluded to in the newspapers of the time. An unauthenticated photo of Brocious is displayed today in the Bird Cage Theater Museum in Tombstone. Two other unauthenticated photos of Brocious have been provided by descendants. Several writers who knew Brocious at the time reported that he was well-built with curly black hair and a freckled complexion. He was described by contemporary Billy Breckenridge in his book Hell Dorado, Bringing the Law to the Mesquite, as being the most deadly pistol shot of the cowboys, able to hit running jackrabbits, shoot out candle flames without breaking the candles or lantern holders, and shoot quarters from between the fingers of volunteers. 
On March 8, 1881, Brocious and his friend Johnny Ringo rode to Maxey near Camp Thomas, Arizona. Cowboy Dick Lloyd got drunk while playing poker in O'Neill and Franklin's saloon. After shooting and wounding one man, Lloyd rode his horse into the saloon where Brocious was drinking. Brocious and several other men resented the interruption, and about a dozen of them, including Brocious, shot and killed Lloyd. Owner O'Neill took the blame and was acquitted. By all accounts, Ringo was a backshooter who hung with a bad crowd and made himself look big, and very likely took part in ambushing two of the Earp brothers later in this story. Ringo will end up dead at the end of this story, and the biggest legend he left behind is the question of which of four men killed him, as he was found dead, propped up against a tree with a bullet hole in his temple, and looking like he'd been shot while on his horse and dragged for a good distance. Getting back to John Bean, the sheriff of Cochise County, if you had to pin the fight at the O.K. Corral on one single catalyst, it might have been John Bean. He hated all the Earps, but especially Virgil and Wyatt. Virgil for being the city marshal of Tombstone, which cut into Bean's power. But he hated Wyatt because Wyatt was courting the object of Bean's affections, a pretty young actress from the cast of a traveling show who had decided to stay in town after the troupe left, and she was rooming in Bean's house. And Bean was doing all he could to anger the Earps. In July of 1881, he arrested Doc Holliday on a trumped-up charge of killing a stage driver during a hold-up outside of town. The charge was later dismissed due to no evidence to back it up, but Holliday was angered by the move. Bean then started the rumor that the Earps had masterminded that robbery, using Morgan's inside knowledge of the Wells Fargo stage operations. Then, in September of 1881, just a few weeks before the gunfight, Virgil arrested one of Bean's deputies, Frank Stillwell, and his accomplice, Pete Spence, a friend of the Clantons, for holding up a stage. Ike Clanton appeared in court and paid the bail for both prisoners. Then Frank McClary came to town to back the Clanton's play, whereupon he ran into Morgan Earp on the sidewalk and angrily invited him to step out in the street, where Ike and his friends were standing. McClary then threatened Morgan, saying, If you ever try to take me, I'll kill you. On the morning of Tuesday, October 25, 1881, the day before the gunfight, Ike Clanton and Tom McClary drove ten miles in a spring wagon from Chandler's Milk Ranch at the foot of the Dragoon Mountains to Tombstone. They were in town to sell a large number of beef stock, most of them owned by the McClarys. Fred Dodge, an undercover detective for Wells Fargo, heard from J.B. Ayers, another undercover agent headquartered in the town of Contention, that Frank McClary, Billy Clanton, and Billy Claiborne were in town and planning to join Ike and Tom in Tombstone Wednesday afternoon. Fred Dodge, who had been sick, got up and went looking for City Marshal Virgil Earp, but he found Tombstone Deputy City Marshal Morgan Earp at the Alhambra Saloon instead and told him the news. Ike began making the rounds of the saloons early that evening on the 25th, getting pretty well liquored up. And everywhere Ike went, he made it clear he was going to kill the Earps and their friends. At 1 a.m. in the morning, he walked into the Alhambra Saloon, sat down at a lunch table in the back lunchroom, and ordered a meal. He failed to notice Wyatt Earp, who was sitting at the lunch counter, and Morgan Earp, who was standing at the bar behind the lunch counter. Then Doc Holliday walked in. 
When Holliday saw Ike Clatton, he bristled and tried to provoke a showdown. He went straight to Ike's table and said, You son of a bitch of a cowboy, get out your gun and get to work. Ike replied, I don't have a gun. And this is as good a time as any to explain why. In April of that year, Sheriff Virgil Earp had posted a decree making it a crime to carry guns or knives into town. You had to check them in. Doc, Wyatt, Virgil, and Morgan were all serving as law enforcers, so they were carrying. As the men exchanged words, Wyatt called over to Morgan, suggesting since he was serving his stint this evening as a town policeman, that he separate the pair. Morgan swung his legs over the counter, grabbed Holliday's arm, and escorted him out into the street. When Ike sauntered out, Holliday was waiting. "'You ain't healed. Go heal yourself,' he said, challenging Ike to go and get his gun, and he, Holliday, would wait. Morgan added fuel to the fire by saying, "'You can have all the fight you've been asking for now.' Ike walked away, later choosing to sit in on an all-night poker game, which left him blurry and belligerent when the gunfight finally came. Wyatt Earp walked over to the Oriental Saloon, and Ike followed him. They talked again, and Ike threatened to confront Holiday in the morning. Ike told Earp that the fighting talk had been going on for a long time, and that he intended to put an end to it. Ike told Earp, I will be ready for you in the morning. Wyatt told Ike to go home, because there was no money in it. Ike sat down near Wyatt, now with Ike's revolver in plain sight, and told Earp, You must not think I won't be after you all in the morning. Virgil Earp went to the Occidental Saloon across the street. After Holiday's confrontation with Ike Clanton, Wyatt Earp took Holiday back to his room at Camillus Sidney Buckfly's lodging house to sleep off his drinking, then went home and to bed. Holiday's common-law wife, Big Nose Kate, was there and would witness the shootout the next day, which would take place in the alley below her window. She was never called to testify at the trial, but she did write a handwritten account that was discovered years later. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Tombstone Marshal Virgil Earp played poker with Ike Clanton, Tom McClory, Cochise County Sheriff Johnny Behan, and a fifth unnamed man in the back room of the Occidental Saloon until morning. Probably to keep an eye on them. At about dawn on October 26th, the card game broke up, and Bean and Virgil Earp went home to bed. Ike Clanton testified later that he saw Virgil take his six-shooter out of his lap and stick it in his pants when the game ended. So he had been ready for anything throughout that poker game. 
Not having rented a room, Tom McClary and Ike Clanton had no place to go. Shortly after 8 a.m., barkeeper E.F. Boyle spoke to Ike Clanton in front of the telegraph office. Clanton had been drinking all night, and Boyle encouraged him to get some sleep, but Ike insisted he would not go to bed. Boyle later testified he noticed Ike was armed and covered his gun for him. Boyle later said that Ike told him, as soon as the Earps and Doc Holliday showed themselves on the street, the ball would open, and that they would have to fight, inferring there that they were cowards. Boyle continued, I went down to Wyatt Earp's house and told him that Ike Clanton had threatened that when Wyatt, his brothers, and Doc Holliday showed themselves on the street, that the ball would open. Ike, who, as you remember, ran from the shootout, claiming he was unarmed, said in his testimony afterward that he remembered neither meeting Boyle nor making any such statements that day. Deputy Marshal Andy Bronk also heard the talk around town. He woke Virgil, who listened, and went back to sleep. Ike's ongoing threats were common, and it wasn't worth losing sleep. Later in the morning, according to his testimony, Ike picked up his rifle and revolver from the West End Corral, where he had deposited his weapons and stabled his wagon and team after entering town. By noon that day, Ike was still drinking, and once again armed, in violation of the city ordinance against carrying firearms in the city. He told anyone who would listen he was looking for Doc Holliday or any one of the Earps. At Fly's boarding house, where Holliday and his common-law wife, Mary Catherine Horany, known as Big Nose Kate, were sleeping, Proprietor Mary Fly heard Clanton's threats and banged on Holliday's door. Fly told Kate, Ike Clanton was here looking for Holliday, and he has a rifle with him. Kate woke Holliday and relayed the threat, and Holliday replied, If God will let me live long enough to get my clothes on, I will see him. At about 1 p.m., Marshal Virgil and his deputy Morgan Earp found Ike on 4th Street, still armed, and Virgil buffaloed him meaning pistol-whipped him from behind. Disarming him, the Earps took Ike to appear before the Justice of the Peace, A.O. Wallace, for violating the ordinance. Wyatt waited with Clanton while Virgil went to find Justice Wallace so a court hearing could be held. While Wyatt waited for Virgil to return with Justice Wallace, witnesses overheard Wyatt tell Clanton, You cattle-thieving son of a bitch, and you know that I know you're a cattle-thieving son of a bitch, You've threatened my life enough, and you've got to fight. Ike Clanton was heard to reply, Fight is my racket, and all I want is four feet of ground. Ike reported in his testimony afterward that Wyatt Earp cursed him. He said Wyatt, Virgil, and Morgan offered him his rifle and to fight him right there in the courthouse, which Ike declined. Ike also denied ever threatening the Earps. Justice Wallace fined Ike $25 plus court cost. Ike paid the fine, and Virgil told Ike he could pick up his confiscated rifle and revolver at the Grand Hotel, which was favored by cowboys when in town. Ike testified that he picked up the weapons from William Sewell, the jailer, a couple of days later. Outside the courthouse where Ike was being fined, Tombstone Deputy Marshal Wyatt almost walked into 28-year-old Tom McClory as the two men were brought up short nose to nose. Tom, who had arrived in town the day before, was required by the well-known city ordinance to deposit his pistol when he first arrived in town. When Wyatt demanded, Are you healed or not? McClary said he was not armed. 
Wyatt testified that he saw a revolver in plain sight on the right hip of Tom's pants. As an unpaid deputy marshal for Virgil, Wyatt habitually carried a pistol in his waistband, as was the custom of that time. McClary sneered at Earp and said, If you want to make a fight, I'll fight anywhere. Witnesses reported that Wyatt drew his revolver from his coat pocket, slapped McClory in the face with his left hand, and pistol-whipped McClory with his right, twice, leaving him prostrate and bleeding on the street. Saloon-keeper Andrew Meehan testified at the Spicer hearing afterward that he saw McClory deposit a revolver at the Capitol Saloon sometime between 1 and 2 p.m. after the confrontation with Wyatt, which Meehan also witnessed. Wyatt said in his deposition afterward that he had been temporarily acting as city marshal for Virgil the week before, while Virgil was in Tucson for the Pete Spence and Frank Stilwell trial. Wyatt said that he still considered himself a deputy city marshal, which Virgil later confirmed. Since Wyatt was an off-duty officer, he could not legally search or arrest Tom for carrying a revolver within the city limits, a misdemeanor offense. Only Virgil or one of his city police deputies, including Morgan Earp and possibly Warren Earp, could search him and take any required action. Wyatt, who was portrayed as a non-drinker, testified at the Spicer hearing that he went to Hafford's and bought a cigar and then went outside to watch the Cowboys. At the time of the gunfight, about two hours later, Wyatt could not know if Tom was still armed. It was early afternoon by the time Ike and Tom had seen doctors for their head wounds. One of the Clanton's wagon drivers, young, gangly Billy Claiborne, had taken Ike to the town doctor, Gillingham, earlier, to get his head wounds treated, and ran into Billy Clanton and Frank McClary, just prior to McClary's arrest by Wyatt, telling them the news. When Billy got to Ike, he saw his bandaged head and his condition, and advised him to go home, but Ike was in too deep to pull out. The day was chilly, with snow still on the ground in some places, and blustery, causing the men to wear long coats. Both Tom and Ike had spent the night gambling, drinking heavily, and without sleep. Now they were both out of doors, both wounded from head beatings, and at least Ike, if not Tom McClory, was still drunk. At around 1.30 to 2 p.m., after Tom had been pistol-whipped by Wyatt, Ike's 19-year-old younger brother Billy Clanton and Tom's older brother, Frank McClary, arrived in town. They had heard from their neighbor, Ed Old Man Frank, and upon reaching town, Billy Claiborne, that Ike had been stirring up trouble in town overnight, and they'd ridden into town on horseback to back up their brothers. They arrived from Antelope Springs, 13 miles east of Tombstone, where they'd been rounding up stock and had breakfasted with Ike and Tom the day before. Both Frank and Billy were armed with a revolver and a rifle, as was the custom for riders in the country outside Tombstone. Apache warriors had engaged the U.S. Army near Tombstone just three weeks before the O.K. Corral gunfight, so the need for weapons outside of town was well established and accepted. Billy and Frank stopped first at the Grand Hotel on Allen Street and were greeted by Doc Holliday. They learned immediately after of their brother's beatings by the Earps within the previous two hours. The incidents had generated a lot of talk in town. Angrily, Frank said he would not drink, and he and Billy left the saloon immediately to seek Tom. By law, both Frank and Billy should have left their firearms at the Grand Hotel, but instead, they remained fully armed. 
Wyatt said that he saw Billy Clanton and Frank McClary in Spangenberger's gun and hardware store on 4th Street, filling their gun belts with cartridges. Ike testified afterward that Tom was not there and that he tried to buy a new revolver, but the owner saw Ike's bandaged head and refused to sell him one. Ike apparently had not heard Virgil tell him that his confiscated weapons were at the Grand Hotel around the corner from Spangenberger's shop. When Virgil Earp learned that Wyatt was talking to the cowboys at Spangenberger's, he went there himself. Virgil testified afterward that he thought he saw all four men, Ike Clanton, Billy Clanton, Frank McClary, and Tom McClary, buying cartridges. Virgil went around the corner on Allen Street to the Wells Fargo office, where he picked up a short, double-barreled 12-gauge shotgun. It was an unusually cold and windy day in Tombstone, and Virgil was wearing a long overcoat. To avoid alarming Tombstone's public, Virgil hid the shotgun under his overcoat when he returned to Hafford's saloon. From Spangenberg's, the cowboys moved to the O.K. Corral, where witnesses overheard them threatening to kill the Earps. For unknown reasons, the cowboys then walked out the back of the O.K. Corral and then west, stopping in a narrow, empty lot next to C.S. Fly's boarding house. Miner Reuben F. Coleman later told the Tombstone Epitaph, I was in the O.K. Corral at 2.30 p.m. when I saw the two Clantons and the two McClaurys in an earnest conversation across the street at Dunbar's Corral. I went up the street and notified Sheriff Behan and told him that it was my opinion that they meant trouble and it was his duty as sheriff to go and disarm them. I told him they had gone to the West End Corral. I then went and saw Marshal Virgil Earp and notified him to the same effect. Cochise County Sheriff Johnny Bean, a friend of the Cowboys, later testified that he woke up about 1.30 p.m. after that late-night card game and went to get a shave at the barbershop. That's where he first learned that the Cowboys were armed. Bean stated that he quickly finished his shave and went to locate the Cowboys. At about 2.30 p.m., he found Frank McClary holding a horse and talking to someone on 4th Street near the corner of Fremont. When he saw Ike Clanton and Tom McClory near C.S. Fly's photography studio, he walked there with Frank. He told the cowboys that they must give up their arms. Ike Clanton said he wasn't armed, and Tom McClory pulled his coat open to show he was not carrying a weapon. Remember, this is Bean's testimony. The cowboys were located in a narrow 15 to 20 foot wide lot between the Harwood House, which was a private home, and Fly's 12-room boarding house and photography studio at 312 Fremont Street, where Doc Holliday, as we already know, was rooming. Bean later said he attempted to persuade Frank McClory to give up his weapons, but Frank insisted that he would give up his guns only after City Marshal Virgil Earp and his brothers were first disarmed. Citizens reported to Virgil on the Cowboys' movements and their threats, and told him that Ike and Tom had left the livery stable and entered town while armed, in violation of the city ordinance. Virgil Earp was told by several citizens that the McClarys and the Clantons had gathered on Fremont Street. Virgil decided he had to disarm the Cowboys. His decision to take action may have been influenced by the Cowboys' repeated threats to the Earps, their proximity to Holiday's room in Fly's boarding house, and their location on the route the Earps usually took to their homes two blocks further west, on Fremont Street. Several members of the Citizens' Vigilance Committee offered to support him with arms, but Virgil refused. He had, during the prior month, appointed Morgan as a special policeman. 
He had also appointed Wyatt as a special policeman, while Virgil had been in Prescott on business. Wyatt spoke of his brothers Virgil and Morgan as the marshals, while he acted as deputy. Virgil picked up the shotgun he had retrieved from the Wells Fargo office earlier, and he was carrying it under his coat so as not to alarm the townspeople. As usual, the Earps, wearing black Stetsons and greatcoats, with string ties hanging down their white shirt fronts, carried their revolvers in their coat pockets or in their waistbands. Wyatt Earp was carrying a forty-four caliber American 1869 Smith & Wesson revolver. Many Wyatt Earp fans believe that Earp had a long-barreled buntline revolver, but that's been proven to be a myth. Holiday was wearing a gray-colored greatcoat and carrying a nickel-plated pistol in a holster, but this was concealed by his long coat. Holiday was also using his cane. Wyatt spoke calmly back over his shoulder to Holiday as they walked. Doc, this is our fight. There's no call for you to mix in. And Doc replied, That's a hell of a thing for you to say to me. Wyatt was the best friend he had in the world. At that point, Virgil stopped walking and turned to face Holiday. He asked Doc to hand him his cane, and he deputized him on the spot. In return for the cane, Virgil handed Doc his scatter gun and told him to keep it under his coat. At that point, the Earps and Holiday walked west down the south side of Fremont Street past the rear entrance to the O.K. Corral, but out of visual range of the cowboy's last reported location. Near the corner of 4th and Fremont, the Earps ran into Sheriff Bean. He had left the cowboys and came toward them, though he looked nervously backward several times. Virgil testified afterward that Bean told him, For God's sakes, don't go down there, or they will murder you. Wyatt said Bean told him and Morgan, I have disarmed them. Bean testified afterward that he'd only said he'd gone down to the cowboys for the purpose of disarming them, not that he actually had disarmed them. Again, Bean's testimony. One eyewitness, laundryman Peter H. Fallahy, wrote in his testimony afterward that Virgil Earp told Bean, Those men have made their threats, and I will not arrest them, but I will kill them on sight. When Bean told Virgil that he had disarmed them, Virgil attempted to avoid a fight. He later said, I had a walking stick in my left hand now, and my hand was on my six-shooter in my waist pants, and when he said he had disarmed them, I shoved it clean around to my left hip and changed my walking stick to my right hand. Wyatt testified, I took my pistol, which I had in my hand, under my coat, and put it in my overcoat pocket. The Earps walked further down Fremont Street and came into full view of the cowboys in the lot. Wyatt testified he saw Frank McClary, Tom McClary, and Billy Clanton standing in a row against the east side of the building on the opposite side of the vacant space west of Fly's photograph gallery. Wyatt said, Ike Clanton and Billy Clanton and a man I don't know, who turned out to be Wes Fuller, were standing in the vacant space about halfway between the photograph gallery and the next building west. Addie Borland, another witness, corroborated Wyatt's testimony, stating that she saw five men opposite my house leaning against a small house west of Fly's Gallery, and one man was holding a horse standing a little out from the house. That man was Frank McClary. Martha J. King was in Bowers Butcher Shop located on Fremont Street. She later testified that when the Earp Party passed by her location, 
one of the herps on the outside of the group looked across and said to Doc Holliday, nearest the store, Let him have it. To which Holliday replied, All right. When the herps approached the lot, the four lawmen initially faced six cowboys. Frank McClary, Tom McClary, Billy Clanton, Billy Claiborne, Wes Fuller, and Ike Clanton. When the cowboys saw the officers, they stepped away from the Harwood house. Billy Claiborne and Wes Fuller retreated. In testimony given by witnesses afterward, there were disagreements about the precise location of the men before, during, and after the gunfight. The coroner's inquest and the Judge Spicer hearing produced a sketch showing the cowboy standing from left to right, facing Fremont Street, with Billy Clanton and then Frank McClory near the Hardwood House, and Tom McClory and Ike Clanton roughly in the middle of the lot. Opposite them, and initially only six to ten feet away, Bergelerp was on the left end of the Earp party, standing a few feet inside the vacant lot and nearest Ike Clanton. Behind him, a few feet near the corner of C.S. Fly's boarding house, was Wyatt. Morgan Earp was standing on Fremont Street to Wyatt's right, and Doc Holliday anchored the end of their line in Fremont Street, a few feet to Morgan's right. Billy Clanton and Frank McClary wore revolvers in holsters on their belts and stood alongside their saddled horses with rifles in their scabbards. And the rest of the story, which is compiled from the newspaper accounts of the day, you've already heard at the top. When the shooting had stopped, Sheriff Bean suddenly found his courage and came out from behind flies, saying to Wyatt, I'm going to have to arrest you. And Earp replied, I won't be arrested today. I am right here, and I'm not going away. You have deceived me. You told me these men were disarmed. I went to disarm them. Dr. Henry M. Matthews examined the dead cowboys late that night. He found Frank McClory had two wounds, a gunshot beneath the right ear that horizontally penetrated his head, and a second entering his abdomen one inch to the left of his navel. Sheriff Bean testified that he'd heard Morgan Earp yell, I got him, after Frank was shot. However, during the gunfight, Frank moved across Fremont Street, putting Holliday on Frank's right and Morgan on his left. This makes it much more likely that Holliday shot the fatal round that killed Frank. When he examined Tom McClory's body, Matthews found 12 buckshot wounds from a single shotgun blast on the right side under his arm, between the third and fifth ribs. The wound was about four inches across. The nature and location of the wound indicated that it could not have been received if Tom's hands were on his coat lapels, as the cowboys later testified. Which shows that the cowboys and their accomplices, including Sheriff Bean, were doing their best to lay the blame on the Earps and Doc Holliday, and to make it look like cold-blooded murder. The funerals for Billy Clanton, age 19, Tom McClory, age 28, and his older brother Frank, age 33, were well attended. About 300 people joined in the procession to Boot Hill, and as many as 2,000 watched from the sidewalks. Both McClory's were buried in the same grave, and Billy Clanton was buried nearby. The story was widely printed in newspapers across the United States. Most versions favored the lawmen. The headline in the San Francisco Exchange was, A Good Riddance. The headline on the tombstone epitaph read, Three men hurled to eternity in the duration of a moment. Three days after the shootout, the ruling of the coroner's jury convened by Dr. Henry Matthews neither condemned 
nor exonerated the lawmen for shooting the cowboys. William Clanton and Frank and Thomas McClory came to their deaths in the town of Tombstone on October 26, 1881, from the effects of pistol and gunshot wounds, inflicted by Virgil Earp, Morgan Earp, Wyatt Earp, and one Holiday, commonly called Doc Holiday. Four days after the shootout, Ike Clanton filed murder charges against Doc Holliday and the Earps. Wyatt and Holliday were arrested and brought before the Justice of the Peace, Wells Spicer. Morgan and Virgil were still recovering at home. Only Wyatt and Holliday were required to post $10,000 bail, which was paid by their attorney Thomas Fitch, local mine owner E.B. Gage, Wells Fargo undercover agent Fred Dodge, and other business owners appreciative of the Earp's efforts to maintain order. Virgil Earp was suspended as town marshal pending the outcome of the trial. Justice Spicer convened a preliminary hearing on October 31st to determine if there was enough evidence to go to trial. The prosecution was led by Republican District Attorney Littleton Price, assisted by John M. Murphy, James Robinson, and Ben Odrich. They were joined by William McClary, who was Frank and Tom's older brother, he also being an able attorney, who played a key role on the prosecutor's team. The Earp's attorney, Thomas Fitch, was an experienced trial lawyer and had earned a reputation as the silver-tongued orator of the Pacific. Spicer took written and oral testimony from a number of witnesses over more than a month. Accounts by both participants and eyewitnesses were, as you can expect, contradictory. Those loyal to one side or the other told conflicting stories, and independent eyewitnesses who did not know the participants by sight were unable to say for certain who shot first. Johnny Behan testified on the third day of the hearing. During two full days on the stand, he gave strong testimony that the cowboys had not resisted, but either threw up their hands or turned out their coat vests to show they were not armed. Behan's views turned public opinion against the Earps, who were free on bail. He and other prosecution witnesses testified that Tom McClory was unarmed, that Billy Clanton had his hands in the air, and that neither of the McClory's were troublemakers. They portrayed Ike Clanton and Tom McClory as being unjustly bullied and beaten by the vengeful Earps on the day of the gunfight. On the strength of the prosecution case, Spicer revoked the bail for Doc and Wyatt Earp and had them jailed on November 7th, and they spent the next 16 days in jail. Defense accounts contradicted the testimony of Bean, Claiborne, and Allen, who all said that a man had fired a nickel-plated pistol first. Claiborne and Allen both said it was Holiday. Virgil, Wyatt, and other witnesses testified that Holiday was carrying a shotgun. Morgan remained bedridden throughout the trial, so he couldn't testify. The prosecution scenario would have required Holiday to fire with his pistol first, then switch to the shotgun to shoot Tom McClary then switched back again to his pistol to continue firing. An impossibility. Three witnesses gave key evidence that swayed Justice Spicer to hold that Virgil had acted within his capacity as town marshal, and that there was insufficient evidence to indict the Earps and Doc Holliday for murder. H.F. Sills was an ATSNF railroad engineer who had just arrived in town and knew none of the parties involved. He testified that he saw the marshal go up and speak to this other party. I saw them pull out their revolvers immediately. The marshal, meaning Virgil, had a cane in his right hand at the time. 
"'He throwed up his hand and spoke. "'I did not hear the words, though. "'By that time Billy Clanton and Wyatt Earp had fired their guns off. "'Grilled by the prosecution, "'he corroborated virtually all of the defense's testimony. "'Addie Borland was a dressmaker "'whose residence was across Fremont Street "'from Fly's boarding house. "'She testified that she saw both sides face each other, "'that none of the cowboys had held their hands up, "'that the firing was general.' and that she had not seen Billy Clanton fall immediately as the cowboys had testified. Judge J. H. Lucas of the Cochise County Probate Court had offices in the Mining Exchange Building about 200 feet from the shootout. Lucas corroborated Addie Borland's testimony that Billy Clanton was standing throughout the fight, which contradicted prosecution witnesses who maintained he went down immediately after being shot at close range in the belly. Spicer noted that no powder burns were found on his clothing. These witnesses' testimonies, especially that of H.F. Sills, a disinterested party, discredited much of the testimony given by Sheriff Johnny Bean, Ike Clanton, and the other cowboy witnesses. After hearing all the evidence, Justice Spicer ruled on November 30th that Virgil, as the lawman in charge that day, had acted within his office and that there was not enough evidence to indict the men. He described Frank McClary's insistence that he would not give up his weapons unless the marshal and his deputies also gave up their arms, as a proposition both monstrous and startling. He noted that the prosecution claimed that the cowboy's purpose was to leave town. Yet Ike Clanton and Billy Claiborne did not have their weapons with them. They would have gathered them up in the process of leaving town. Spicer noted that the doctor who examined the dead cowboys established that the wounds that they received could not have occurred if their hands and arms had been in the positions that the prosecution witnesses described. And they had described the situation as, Hands up, don't shoot. The cowboy statements, along with Sheriff Behan's, were pure BS. Spicer did not condone all of the Earp's actions and criticized Virgil Earp's use of Wyatt and Holliday as deputies. But he concluded that no laws were broken. He said the evidence indicated that the Earps and Holiday acted within the law and that Holiday and Wyatt had been properly deputized by Virgil Earp. The trial ended, but that was when the real war began. Two months later, Virgil Earp was blasted with buckshot as he crossed Fifth Street in the dark. The back-shooting cowards ran without being seen. Virgil's left arm was shattered. He was taken to a room at the Cosmopolitan Hotel where his wife Allie and some friends surrounded him. Virgil tried to console his wife, telling her, Don't worry, Allie. I've still got one arm to hug you with. Three months later, in March of 1882, Wyatt and Morgan Earp were at a billiard hall on Allen Street. As Morgan leaned over a table with his cue, two shots came through the glass of a back door, and Morgan fell, his spine shattered by a bullet. Within a half an hour, Morgan was dead. Witnesses had seen Pete Spence, a friend of the Clintons, and Frank Stillwell, Sheriff Behan's deputy and friend, whom Virgil had arrested for shooting up a stage the previous November, and whom Behan had released from jail, and a third man said to be an Indian. The Earp War and Vendetta in Tombstone had begun, and by the time it ended, the hills around Tombstone would be littered with dead bodies. Join us next Sunday night for the exciting conclusion of Wyatt Earp, The Man and the Myth. And if you enjoyed our show, please do send us a review. 
especially at Apple Podcast app, you Apple listeners. September is a very important time for us to move those rankings up, and your reviews and subscriptions will help. If you know someone who has not subscribed and can show them, we would appreciate that very much. Those subscriptions are big for us, and it's a great way to support our show. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. We'll be back Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. mental health facts let's go nearly 2 million ohioans live with a mental health condition in the u.s more than 50 percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide so why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma ohio challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org